these are the uh, most common arguments I hear when I go and debate people, uh, like on Talk Origins. The first one is intelligent design answers everything. The intelligent design theory answers everything, therefore nothing. So intelligent design theory is utterly boring because the standard reply is, how did this happen? Well, God did it, right? So that's a pretty good one. Intelligent design theory is thinly disguised creationism. And we all know creationism is wrong. So intelligent design theory must also be wrong. The next argument is intelligent design uses the God of the gaps argument, which is a logical fallacy. And so therefore, it's uh, non-scientific. The next one is intelligent design proposes no testable, falsifiable predictions that have not already been falsified. For example, irreducible complexity proposed by Behe a few years back, well, that's been falsified. Not, you know, things are reducible, nothing's irreducibly complex, so that's wrong. And specified complexity uh, pr uh, proposed by Dinsky, that's also been falsified. Uh, nature can produce very specified levels of complexity just as easily as, as anything. So that's, that's wrong. And the last one is no intelligent, does, no intelligent God would have done it that way. God is rather stupid if he made things the way they are. Okay? So, what about the everything and nothing argument? Does God explain everything and therefore nothing? Or does intelligence explain everything and therefore nothing? Well, I'd like to flip it around and ask evolutionists, I was like, does the theory of evolution explain everything and therefore nothing? So wasn't everything evolved by mindless nature? Or everything ultimately produced by mindless nature that we see today? So does evolution or natural process explain everything? Or at least attempt to explain everything and therefore nothing? Does it work both ways? Or it only worked against intelligent design? Also, how can scientists like forensic scientists, anthropologists, and SETI scientists propose intelligence behind certain phenomena <coughs> when mindless nature could have done the same thing? So is it really true that intelligence uh, explains everything and therefore nothing? No, uh, if it explained everything and therefore nothing, there would be no science of anthropology or forensics or, or even SETI. Does that make sense? So what about the argument that intelligent design is utterly boring? William Provine. He writes, the most basic problem with intelligent design theory is that it's utterly boring. Everything that's complicated or interesting about biology has a very simple explanation. ID did it, or intelligent design did it. SETI scientists are looking for particular types of radio signals coming from space as evidence, by, as evidence of alien intelligence. If such a signal were ever found, would any scientist be bored by such a hypothesis? But is the truth boring just because intelligence is behind it? No. That would hit the front page of every newspaper in the world, right? 70 scientists have found ET. Is that boring? No. Computers also have very simple explanations. Humans did it. Like your laptop, anybody have a laptop in here? Is there a very simple explanation how your laptop came to be? Humans did it. Is that really as, is that, inclusive enough about a real explanation of how your laptop came to be. Yeah, it's a simple one-liner, one, one but that doesn't really encompass the full complexity of how to make laptops, right? Saying that God did it or an intelligent agent did it is not really encompassing the full complexity of how it was done. It's just saying that this could only have been done by intelligence. Also, just because something is simple uh, and boring, perhaps, does that make it false? 
Like 2 plus 2 equals 4. Simple, boring perhaps for most people in this room. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's boring, yeah. I mean, but is 2 plus 2 5 plus 2 plus 2 equals 5? Is that more interesting? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, but is it right? Okay. How about intelligent design is a religion, therefore it's not a science. Religion talks about non-physical, non-testable, non-falsifiable truths, according to most uh, educated people. Uh, any examples? For, for example, are there examples of non-falsifiable truths? And here I've lifted some that are potentially non-falsifiable because they're in the eye of the beholder. For example, like beauty. That's commonly, you hear the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So it's kind of subjective. Same thing with joy. What makes somebody happy might not make another person happy, right, or joyful. Love, too. You can know you love somebody else. Absolutely. You don't need to ask anybody else if you really love somebody. You know, you know do I need to ask you if I love my wife? No. You know, you can't tell me that. I know that internally. Same thing for taste. Some people like certain types of foods that other people would gag at, right, or desire. What about mathematics, though? Is mathematics subjective? Is it internally derived? Do you need to have the physical world to help you with understand mathematics? In a sense, maybe it would help, but sometimes you can just imagine mathematics in your head. It's somehow mathematics or the understanding of math is somehow given to you as a gift. It's internally derived. You can think about math in your head and do thought experiments without actually having to go and look at the real world. Uh, what about God? Is God something like mathematics? Is he an internally derived truth? Does God speak to you in a little still small voice inside your head? That you can know that only God is talking to me. Some people tell me that I've been inspired to tell you this. I've been inspired to tell you that. To be honest, I have never heard an audible voice in my head. I've never had a direct, what I would call a direct inspiration from God. And I can't tell you as an internally derived truth that God exists. Some people may maybe can because God has actually talked to them. Like some prophets say that God has verbally talked to them, Moses face to face, right? That has not happened to me. Okay, so how, upon what basis then do I believe in God? Because he, he does not talk to me in little, small little voices that I can actually hear. I maybe have some sort of impulse or whatever, but maybe that's indigestion. I don't know. Okay, God... Uh, what about the argument of intelligent design uses the God of the gaps arguments? So do all scientific hypotheses. After a point, uh, no scientific hypothesis or even theory is absolutely provable. Everything is open to potential falsification. You come up to a limit in your evidence, and then you have to make a leap, a leap of faith before you can actually believe your hypothesis or theory is actually true and will actually happen in the future as you predict it will. You don't absolutely know. And in fact, if you did absolutely know, if you had absolute knowledge about something, science would no longer be needed. Science is only needed when you don't know complete knowledge or when you don't have complete knowledge. It's only there to help you interpret less than complete knowledge. That's what science is for. It's for those of us who are a little bit handicapped when it comes to adequate knowledge. That's what science does. If you have complete, adequate knowledge, you don't need science. Everything then is based on leaps of faith. It all depends on how big of a leap you're willing to take. Okay? So, 
The gap hypothesis isn't really valid in my view. What about the intelligent design theory has been falsified? If it has been falsified, what was it before it was falsified? A valid scientific hypothesis, then, right? So to argue that it's been falsified is by definition recognizing that it used to be a valid scientific hypothesis. So then how can you argue that it was never a valid scientific hypothesis and then out of the same breath say that it's been falsified? You can't do that. You can only falsify things that used to be valid scientific hypotheses. Make sense? Okay. So let's go on from there. Let's just say, look at these arguments of things that have been falsified. Irreducibly complex systems do not exist. That's the claim that the whole hypothesis or idea of Behe that irreducible complexity is evidence of intelligent design, that whole idea has been falsified. Because random mutations do combine with natural selection to easily produce uh, what Dembski would also call specified information. So his idea on specified complexity is also falsified. So um, let's look at some arguments for this. This is Kenneth Miller. He's a famous biologist from Brown University. He's written several uh, very popular books. He's made him a wealthy man just off his books alone. In fact, I think I should probably try to write some of my own. But anyway. He writes, the logic of their argument of ideas is that you have to, these multiple part systems and that the parts within them are useless on their own. The instant that I or anybody else finds a subset of parts that actually has a function, the argument of irreducible complexity is destroyed. Okay? So for example, if I take a car and take out the motor, the lights and the radio still work. So is the car irreducible? According to Miller's argument, is it irreducible? No, because the lights, and motor, or the lights and radio still work. So even though it doesn't have the motor anymore, it's not irreducible because something still works. Make sense? Like a fish without eyes. Everything else still works, but you take out the eyes, you can't see anymore, but does the fish still work? Fish still works, so is the fish irreducible? It's not irreducible, according to Miller. Okay? So here's uh, Kurt Thand. He's a staff science writer for Life Science. He writes, all of the systems that Behe claims are irreducibly complex really aren't. A subset of bacterial flagella proteins, for example, are used by other bacteria to inject toxins into other cells. So because the flagellum I showed you a movie of earlier, because a subset of its structure still works with a different type of function to inject toxins, therefore is the flagellum irreducibly complex, like Behe says, according to Miller? It's not irreducibly complex because you can take away a bunch of parts and the subparts will still work. Make sense? So here's the flagellum. You've got all these, this lots of parts. There's uh, 40 or 50 parts, 40 at minimum. Uh, and it looks like a machine, it looks like a little motor, but you can take away all these parts and still have just this little piece left right here. It doesn't spin, doesn't do anything, but it still works as a toxin injector. It doesn't work as a flagellar motility system, but it does work. Okay, so here's the argument. One machine. Here's the argument from Behe. I'm going to present a little clip from Behe, his, his argument, and then I'm going to present a little clip from Kenneth Miller and how he argues against Behe, and then I'm going to go on from there. One machine particularly attracted his attention. I remember the first time I, I looked in a biochemistry textbook and I saw a drawing of something called a bacterial flagellum with all of its parts and all of its glory. It's had a propeller and the hook region and the, the drive shaft and the motor and so on. I looked at that and I said, that's an outboard motor. That, that's designed. No, that's no chance assemblage of, of parts. Behe's reaction was not surprising. 
for the molecular motors that drive bacteria through liquid. Each depend upon a system of intricately arranged mechanical parts. These parts come into focus when portions of a cell are magnified 50,000 times. Biochemists have used electron micrographs like this one to identify the parts and three-dimensional structure of the flagellar motor. In the process, they have revealed a marvel of engineering on a miniaturized scale. Howard Berg at Harvard has labeled it the most efficient machine in the universe. These machines, some of them are running at 100,000 RPMs and are hardwired into a signal transduction or sensory mechanism so that it's getting feedback from the environment. And even though they're spinning that fast, they can stop on a dime. It only takes a quarter turn for them to stop and shift directions and start spinning 100,000 RPM in the other direction. And just like outboard motors on motorboats, it has a large number of parts which are necessary for the motor to work. The bacterial flagellum, two gears, forward reverse, water cooled, proton motive force, it has a stator, it has a rotor, it has a U-joint, it has a drive shaft, it has a propeller, and they function. Um, as these parts of machines. It's, you know, it's not convenient that we give them these names. That's truly their function. Okay, so that's the one half of the argument. What's the counter-argument? The notion that these complicated biochemical structures couldn't have been produced by evolution has been championed by Michael Beatty. And Beatty has an idea that he calls irreducible complexity. And he says, you can't evolve these things because they're irreducibly complex. Notice what he says. An irreducibly complex system can't be produced the way that evolution works by numerous successive slight modifications of a precursor system because any precursor to an irreducibly complex system that is missing a part is by definition non-functional. These are multi-part systems. And he's basically telling you that the 30 or 40 proteins that are in here, they all have to be together and there's no function. And since natural selection does have to work gradually, I agree on that point, um, it can't produce 20, 25, 26 proteins knowing what will eventually happen because natural selection is blind, which is indeed absolutely true. So the poster child for intelligent design by any standard, it shows up so often, it really could be called the poster child, is in fact the bacterial flagellum. This was mentioned so often in the trial that the judge, uh, probably from fatigue, got a little sarcastic about it. One of the attorneys said, Your Honor, when we reconvene, we're going to talk again about the bacterial flagellum. And the judge at one point said, Oh, goody. <laughs> the last expert witness for the Board of Education, a biochemist named Scott Minnick from the University of Idaho, was called up to the stands to talk about this. And since B, he had talked about it, the lawyers had talked about it, they had argued about it, and I had talked about it, as I'm going to show you here for a second, Minnick got up there. And he said he was going to talk about the bacterial flagellum. And the judge, the judge deadpan, well, we've heard that before. And Minnick turned to him, this is the best line of the trial, Minnick turned to him and said, you know, Your Honor, I sort of feel like Jaja Gabor's fifth husband. I know what to do, I just don't know how to make it exciting. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I take my hat off to Scott. That was good. I like that. Um, so what, what is this argument about? Here, here's the argument in very simplified form. 
Um, if you have a complex, multi-part biochemical machine composed of many parts, its function, everyone agrees, can be favored by natural selection. But the argument is that evolution can't produce them because the individual parts have no function of their own. That's what irreducible complexity means. So natural selection can't make this, doesn't have any function. Can't make that, can't make that. Um, therefore, you can't evolve a structure like this. Now, how does evolution explain something like that? Well, ever since Darwin, we've had a very good explanation. Um, and that is these complicated machines, they don't arise from scratch. They arise from combinations of components that have different functions, functions of their own. And the components originate with functions of their own as well. Therefore, natural selection will work every step of the way. Now, that's not evidence. That's just an argument. But the beauty of this is we can now hold these two ideas up against each other. And we can say, who's right? If irreducible complexity is right, then the parts of these machines should be absolutely useless. But if evolution is right, we should be able to take these machines, look at their parts, and discover, wow, they do other jobs. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's take the bacterial flagellum. So if we start with the flagellum, here it is. And these drawings name the genes and the proteins in the flagellum. And we say, let's take away a whole bunch of the parts. How many? Um, not one. Not five, not ten. Let's take 40 of its 50 parts away. Now watch very carefully, because I'm going to do that experiment right there. There it goes. The parts are all gone, and I have left 10 parts that span the membrane. What are left behind are 10 proteins in the base of the flagellum. Now, if irreducible complexity is right, this should be absolutely functionless. It should have no function. But if you will pardon the double negative, what is left behind is not non-functional. What is left behind is the type 3 secretory system, and it is fully functional. I know most of you in the room are going, of course, the type 3 secretory system. <laughs> the type 3 secretory system is a molecular syringe in which some of the nastiest protein uh, uh, bacteria on this planet produce toxic proteins, grab onto one of our cells, and inject those proteins into our cells. The bacterium that causes bubonic plague works this way. It's really nasty stuff. Well, guess what? The 10 proteins that make up the type 3 secretory system are directly homologous to the 10 proteins in the base of the bacterial flagellum. They don't produce movement. They're not a flagellum. But are they functional? They are fully functional. So remember that claim. Any precursor to an irreducibly complex system that is missing a part is by definition non-functional. This guy is missing 40 parts, and it is perfectly functional. What that means, there's no other word for it, is that that statement is wrong. Now, that's not an incidental statement. That is the heart and soul of the intelligent design argument. And in this case, it turns out to be wrong. Now, it's even wronger than that, because it turns out that not only do these proteins make up the type 3 secretory apparatus, but almost every protein in the bacterial flagellum is strongly homologous to proteins that have other functions elsewhere in the cell. And what that means is when we look at this wonderful icon of intelligent design, a careful analysis of the flagellum actually matches evolutionary theory, namely the parts should have functions of their own and not the intelligent design prediction. And that's simply a fact. Devastating, huh? So. What's, uh, is there any possible solution to that? I mean, he just creamed Fahey, didn't he? I mean, he's a very creative speaker, he's a very entertaining speaker, and he makes good sense. 
if you just first approach it just like he does, he's nail begging, it seems to me. So what what would be my comeback anyway? Let me ask you, based on Kenneth Miller's argument, here's the type 3 secretory system, the toxin injector, and here's the flagellum. Which would you think came first, evolved first? This one, yes or no? Yeah. This one evolved first, based on Kenneth Miller's argument, right? And then this one, after that, because it had the add-on parts, and then finally got to this, right? So you would think this would evolve first if you thought Kenneth Miller's argument was true, right? Everybody think that's right? Okay, it makes sense. Let me tell you, the flagellum is found in many kinds of bacteria. However, the toxin injector is restricted to a few pathogenic gram-negative bacteria that can attack plants and animals, which are thought to come along billions of years after flagellum motility. Does that make sense? From Kenneth Miller's perspective? So here's a paper published by Nugent and, and others. They write, there is little similarity or homology to anything within, within less complex motility systems, only homology to the flagellum subset with that toxin injector to the flagellum subset. Several scientists have promoted the idea that the TTS system evolved from the fully formed flagellar system, not the other way around. Does that make sense given what Miller said? No. But it makes sense from a creationist perspective because which is easier? Is it easier to break Humpty Dumpty or to put it back together again? Break him, right? Is it easier to break him with a little few shreds of him that might still work for a little while by themselves? Right? It's easier. Is it easier to like break your engine block and your car doesn't run anymore but your lights still work for a while? Right? Does that mean your motility system of your car is not irreducible? Yes. Right? The motility system requires a certain number of parts to be there at the same time for your car to run as a motility vehicle instead of a giant flashlight. <laughs> right? Same thing with the flagellum. You can break the flagellum up, but the, will the motility system still work? No, it requires at least 40 parts to be there at the same time in specific arrangement for the motility function to work. Notice that Kenneth Miller removed 40 of the 50, he started with 50, he removed 40 of the 50 proteins and to get stuck with the 10, amino, uh, 10 protein system of the toxin injector. Why didn't he just remove one? Because it doesn't do anything. It doesn't, that's a huge gap. Going from 10 to, uh, to 50, that's not just amino acids we're talking about. That's 40 entire proteins as a gap. Okay. Now his argument is that you've got you got a chunk here of 10, you've got a chunk there of 10 you know, doing something else, you've got a chunk here of 5, and a chunk over here of 2 or 3, and then all these chunks come together. What are the odds that all the chunks will come together? Well, it's better, it is better than the odds that something completely random will come together, like a single amino acid just zooming all together. It's better than those odds. But is it good enough odds for it to come together this side of a trillion years of time? No. If you actually sit down and do the math, which he does not, the odds that it will come together across even a couple protein gap, even one protein gap, crossing a, a single protein gap that's, that's fairly specified, uh, or at least a system gap that requires more than 1,000 fairly specified amino acid residues coming together at the same time, just a small gap like that, not 50 or 40 whole proteins, that requires trillions and trillions and trillions, trillions to the power of trillions of years. It's amazing. But these guys do not sit down and do the math. They're biologists. They think given two billion years of time, the impossible becomes possible. 
They don't sit down and actually do the science. They just sit down and make up these stories about how it's likely to happen given enough time. And they don't actually see if two billion years is <coughs> enough time. Two billion years is a drop in the bucket, statistically, if you actually do the math. A bit about the mechanism of evolution. Random mutations, are they real? Do random mutations happen? Yes, they're real. Do they affect DNA? Yes. Uh, they must be inheritable to be passed on to your children. Right? So they have mutations just can't be random anywhere in your body cells. They have to be random mutations in your gametes, in your sexually reproductive cells in order to be passed on. Natural selection, is it a real force of nature? Yes. It's a real force of nature. Is it does it care about you? No, it's mindless, it's brutal, it has no goal in mind. However, it is capable of detecting phenotypic changes where the phenotypic change uh, has a different, uh, what, I, what I mean by phenotype is the gross appearance. The genotype is the DNA, the phenotype is the body, right? So if you have a genotypic change in your DNA that makes a, a physical change in your body and you don't survive well enough to produce any kids, are you going to make any kids? No, so it's called the whole uh, Darwin Awards. You know, if you're stupid enough to die before you make kids, then uh, your whole offspring are gone. Right? So it's a real force of nature. DNA. DNA is made up of four chemical letters, and they're adenine, thymine, and they're just labeled by these letters to make it more simple. But four chemical letters, and how many uh, chemical or how many symbols do computers work with? Two, right? Zeros and ones. So DNA is more or less complicated than computers as far as the language. A little more. But what about humans? We use how many uh, letters in the English language system? 26. So what's wrong with us? With our do we really need 26 letters to do? You know, you know, computers can do it with two. DNA can do just as complicated stuff with four letters. So it doesn't matter the number of symbols, really. No, it just matters how they're arranged, right? Information is coded by the sequential, sequential order of the chemical letter, similar to the English language system, Morse code, or other language systems, even, even computer codes. It's, a, it's all the same basic concept. Okay? Transcription and translation. How do you get the information out of DNA? You have to copy it into a working copy called messenger RNA, and that is called transcription. It transcribes it. It's still the same information. There's only one little letter difference between RNA and DNA. But otherwise, it's the same basic principle, still based on four letters. And then how do you get the information from RNA to functional structural proteins? You translate it. It's, proteins are based on how many letters? 20. So 20. Proteins are based on 20 different amino acids. So that's kind of like 20 different letters. So it's a different language system. So you have to translate from the language of DNA to the language of proteins. Does that word make sense? So you have a, a whole structural apparatus that's able to take the letter in the uh, messenger RNA and then translate it into a letter in the protein language system. Okay? It's complicated. So this is kind of how it's done. You've got a string of DNA or, and converts to RNA. And then these are the string of proteins that result based on a reading of a three-character frame of reference. So these are called codons. So they're like words, DNA words. And each little word translates into a single protein. A single amino acid, sorry. And then the, stretch, the string of amino acids is a protein. And then the protein gets folded up into a three-dimensional shape. Okay? Here's a little video to kind of illustrate it. This is 
This is actually how it kind of looks, except there's no labels on the actual. <laughs> Translation is the process by which the information contained in messenger RNA is used to direct the synthesis of a polypeptide. This information is carried in the sequence of bases on the messenger RNA molecule. The polypeptide can be assembled once RNA binds to a ribosome. Ribosomes consist of large and small subunits. The large subunit has two binding sites for transfer RNA, the P and A sites. <coughs> transfer RNA carries an amino acid which will be incorporated into the polypeptide. Its anticodon is a triplet complementary to the codon on messenger RNA that specifies that particular amino acid. A ribosome assembles on the start codon AUG. Transfer RNA with the anticodon UAC and carrying the amino acid methionine binds to the codon. The transfer RNA is in the P site of the ribosome. The A site is available for a second transfer RNA with an anticodon complementary to the second messenger RNA triplet. The amino acid carried by the second transfer RNA binds to the methionine. The first transfer RNA leaves the P site and the second transfer RNA moves there, still bound to messenger RNA. This brings the third messenger RNA codon to the now empty A site and the appropriate transfer RNA can bind to it. The third amino acid is added to the chain and translocation occurs once again. This process of polypeptide chain elongation continues until a stop codon is reached. A release factor binds to the A site. It carries no amino acid, but facilitates release of the polypeptide and the messenger RNA from the ribosome. Isn't evolution wonderful? And that's a simple version, very, very simple version. It's much more complicated than that. Proteins. Proteins are functional units of the cell. Very specific sequential orders and three-dimensional structures are dependent upon the proper sequential order of the DNA upon which they're based. Some flexibility is uh, there, uh, depending on the location and class of amino acid letters, can change in protein sequence without the protein system protein-based system losing complete functionality. So there's a little bit of flexibility. Like, for example, if I uh, changed one letter in a paragraph of a book, would the paragraph still be readable, most likely? You probably could have changed like three or four letters, probably still be readable, right? Most likely you could. But after a certain point, you change enough letters, it no longer makes any sense, right? Same thing happens with proteins. They can sustain a certain degree of flexibility, but after a certain point, they can no longer change farther without a complete loss of that type of function in question. In other words, there's a minimum specificity requirement for protein function of a certain type. The <coughs> same thing for English language. Okay? So, let's talk a little bit about Mendelian evolution, or changes that aren't. Mendelian variation is what I like to call it. It's interesting to note that most of what Darwin observed was Mendelian variation, not actual Darwinian evolution, uh, as far as the basis, which is kind of ironic. For example, finches can get large beaks, small little beaks, all these things within like two or three generations. And then depending on the change in the environment, and if the environment switches back, 
these little beaks can switch back and forth. Uh, just, just very rapidly, depending on the environment. Sometimes within a couple generations, all these changes can happen, which Darwin thought would take long periods of time and, and random mutations. But these changes are not based on random mutations at all. They're based on Mendelian variation, which is distinctly different. Same thing with all these breeds of dogs. These breeds of dogs, by and large, there's some differences that are based on real mutations. But by and large, breeds of dogs are based on Mendelian variation, not random mutations. Okay, same thing with the peppered moths. Here are the famous peppered moths and the, all these college textbooks and whatnot. And this is an illustration of evolution in action. There's no such thing. These differences in color of the peppered moths are Men Mendelian variation. Okay? Same thing with the pea plants for Gregor Mendel. Gregor Mendel, if he had became famous before uh, Darwin, Darwin would have had a much harder time uh, uh, making his theory popular. Gregor Mendel is the father of genetics. He studied pea plant hybrids and discovered the principles of basic genetic recombination. Darwin was not aware of Mendel's work, even though they lived at the same time. So, in a nutshell, genetic recombination, uh, when the chromosomes come together in meiosis, they kind of uh, swap uh, information with each other, but they do so at very specific points that are predetermined. In other words, no information that was originally present in the gene pool is actually altered. It's just given a differential expression. Okay, for example, um, a gene is a stretch of functional DNA and that often codes for a protein. Genes occupy specific positions called loci. For a given locus, different versions of the same gene or alleles will fit or work in this position. Different they're called different types of alleles. Just like different types of wheels will work in the same wheel location on a car. Can you trade out wheels on your car and put different kind of, you go to the car body shop and you say, I like that rim and that kind of wheel and, I, and on my car. And somebody else would say, no, I like the other rim and the other kind of wheel on, on the car. And the, the body shop, let's say, has 15 different rim options and 20 different wheel or options. And you can mix and match all those options. Uh, but are there any other options besides those options that you can do for the wheel at the body shop? No, there's only those options available. Those are the alleles. And also, can you take the wheel and put it on uh, the, the wheel for the car uh, and put it in replace of the motor and have the car still work? No, the wheel has to go in the wheel spot on the car. Makes sense for the car to still work. Same thing with Mendelian variation. All, you have all these different allele options in the gene pool, but the alleles must go in the right spot for them to work properly. Makes sense? Uh, What's interesting about uh, sexually reproducing organisms is that we have two copies, two chromosomes for every trait. And so uh, these two copies can mix and match each other. And so which option for which chromosome actually gets expressed? Well, that depends on which one is dominant. There's, there's this term called dominance and recessiveness. And the dominance, and there's also co-dominance and co-recessiveness, but to be simple here, let's just talk about dominance and recessiveness. The dominant one gets expressed, and the recessive one does not get expressed. And so depending on which alleles are put there uh, together or not together, you can have all these different options. You can have uh, differences in fire color, purple or white for peas, or you can have uh, long or short stem length, etc. All these different options, just like you on your different types of wheels on your car or different types of colors on your car or whatever. You can have different options, but the gene pool of options itself the resource of options stays the same. Okay, we already talked about dominance and recessive. So how do you re express a recessive gene? Well, here you got a recessive uh, 
a green allele and a yellow allele. And the uh, expression here in the uh, first generation is a mixture of, of Ys and Gs, of yellows and greens. So up here you can see the phenotypic expression, what will it actually look like. It will only look yellow even though it has genes for green. See this? Yellow even though it has genes for green. So which gene is recessive? Green is recessive because it only expresses yellow, even though it has the gene for green. So how do you express green? You have to have two genes, two green genes, two green alleles, for the thing to be green, right? All these things have two greens, and so those are green. Otherwise, if it has even one yellow, it's going to be yellow. And then you can have uh, uh, multiple alleles. Some traits require uh, many alleles to enhance them, like size. If you have more big-sized genes, you're going to have a bigger dog, for example. If you have fewer uh, genes for size, you're going to have a smaller dog. But there's a limit to how many uh, size genes can be expressed by a given organism. That's why you can't get much bigger than a Great Dane uh, in current doggy gene pool. And you can't get much smaller than a toy uh, chihuahua for smallness. You can't get like a, can you breed down to a thimble-sized dog? <laughs> you know, no matter how hard you do your selective breeding, yeah, cute. Uh, it would be cute, but you can't, you can't do it. And can you breed a dog the size of this room? No, you can't do that. Okay? So there's limits to how Mendelian variation will work. So this difference expression of a, of a static gene pool. And um, so what does it take to evolve a different gene pool? For example, using Mendelian variation alone, can you turn a cat into a dog? Or a lizard into a bird? No, because the gene pool is static. Using Mendelian generation alone, it only has a limited number of options. You can't add more options using Mendelian genetics. So how do you get more options? You get more options or more types of alleles using random mutations that actually change the number of alleles or the type of allele or the quality of alleles. Okay? So what are the odds? How do you, what are the odds that you're going to get uh, alleles with certain levels of functional complexity based on statistics? Well, I like to imagine uh, statistics based on uh, a checkerboard of two-dimensional sequence space. How many three different three-letter options are there in the English language system? You have 26 letters, right, in our alphabet. How many different three-letter sequences can you make with 26 letters? 17,576. <laughs> That's 26 to the power of three. Okay, you have your number of options and you raise it to the power of the length of your sequence. Everybody understand that? That's how many options you have. So that is your total space of options. That encompasses every possible three-letter sequence you could think of. Understand? Yeah. Okay. So what are the odds that I'm going to start on a beneficial three-letter sequence and take a step at random and end up on another beneficial three-letter sequence? Pretty good. Hmm? They're pretty good. Okay. Here's the stepping stones. Here's the little checkerboard, you know. Here's this little island. This represents three-letter sequence space, and as you go on higher and higher letters, the, the targets get rarer and rarer, relatively speaking, and I'll explain how that works a little bit. It's like stepping stones. If you land into the water, does natural selection work anymore? If you're swimming in the water, you have to swim randomly because nature only selects for what is increased in beneficial function, right? Does nature recognize the difference between quizzly gook and quizzly guck? So they both have the same non-functional function, and so nature just flips a coin and says, I'll take Quizzle Duck. You know? So it, in order to make nature say a beneficial selection, a preferential selection, 
The mutation has to produce a sequence that produces a phenotypic functional change that is also beneficial. Okay? So, at, uh, I don't know if I have statistics here yet. At three letter words, the ratio is about 1 in 18. The odds of taking a random step that you'll end up on another beneficial target. If you look up in the Scrabble dictionary, you can figure out the ratio. The ratio is 1 in 18. For two letter sequences, it's 1 in 7. What do you think it is for seven letter sequences? Like you kind of double it. Do you think the odds double? Or the odds decrease by double? No. The odds go down to 1 in 250,000. Okay, now let's go up to 28 letter sequences. What are the odds now? So it's 1 in uh, 63 billion. Okay, so it's an exponential decline in the ratio. Yes? Sorry, real quick. Uh, talk about like uh, beneficial to the person evolving. Is that like divine evolution? No, I'm talking about if the mutation produces something where you can either make more kids or your kids survive better than everybody else's kids, then that's beneficial according to uh, theory of evolution. And it works. That, that works. But you actually have to land on a sequence that does that. And, and landing on a, on a beneficial sequence depends on the odds of sequence space. And at low level sequence space, three letter words are interconnected, like I showed you before. Cat, hat, bad, big dog, right? They're interconnected and there's only a few little islands of, of water around that are not beneficial. The ratio is pretty high. For two letter sequences, it's one in seven, right? And then, but then it's an exponential decline. The water or the non-beneficial sequences in sequence space increase exponentially faster than the in increase in beneficial sequences as you move up with higher structural or higher sequence and specificity requirements. So as you go up to like seven letter words, all of a sudden you get a lot more water and a lot less islands that nature can select for. And the islands kind of get stretched out like gum and they're kind of sticky and they have these little bridges between them statistically. But then as you go higher, then the islands start bre breaking apart and the bridges start breaking between them. And then you keep going higher and the ocean just takes over and these islands become remotely isolated in sequence space. So then how to get from one island to the next in a remotely isolated sequence space? What is there? Does nature's natural selection work to help guide the process along? No, it's purely random walk. So to get from this island to this island, the linear path is increasing linearly, or the distance between islands, as it, the linear distance increases linearly, or the direct distance in, increases linearly, the random walk distance increases exponentially. Okay, so because you have to, this is an average random walk I generated on the computer. Here's the island here, it missed it, come close. Missed it, but it took a long walk. If you stretch the red line out, how, many, how much longer will the red line be compared to the yellow line? exponentially longer as you increase the distance of the yellow line. So here's the, another computer. And also, we're not dealing with two-dimensional space here. This is a three-dimensional random walk. The odds that you'll get from a target here to a specific target on the edge, this is a linear distance as this increases. This random walk distance increases even more than you would expect on a two-dimensional random walk. And the random walks we're talking about for proteins are actually hyperdimensional. They're beyond three dimensions. They involve as many dimensions as there are characters in the sequence. So you can have an 1800 character protein-based system it is, uh, lives in 1800 dimensions of sequence space. I know I can't imagine that, but mathematically it's true. So here's a little bit of mathematics for the two letters. There's uh, the size of two letter checkerboard is uh, 677 squares, three letter checkerboard is uh, 1,756 squares. 
Define two-letter words in the dictionary are 96, so the ratio is 1 in 7. And define three-letter words as 972, so the ratio is 1 in 18. And so that's why you can get, with these fairly high ratios, interconnected sequences like this. Uh, I already told you about the statistics for seven-letter words. Seven-letter checkerboard size is uh, 8 billion, thereabouts. Meaningful seven-letter words in the dictionary, 23,000. And then if you add together with uh, combinations of three letters and two letters to make combinations of seven letters or whatever, then you, you uh, increase the ratio a little bit more. So each meaningful word in seven-letter sequence space or meanings, meaningful sequence is surrounded by 347,000 non-meaningful ones. And we're not even talking beneficial here. We're only talking meaningful. Okay? So you keep going. Let's uh, look at... He thinks it's like a weasel from Shakespeare. This is one of Richard Dawkins' famous phrases that he has this algorithm where his computer generates uh, methinks it's like a weasel in a few generations. The checkerboard size for this 28 character sequence is 1 to the power, or 1 with 40 zeros after it. That's a huge number, or 27 is a 28 because there's a, he, he uses spaces, so that's another character for a sequence. So instead of 26 characters, there's 27. And the methinks it's like a weasel has 28 characters in it. So it's 27 to the power of 28, that's where I get the 1 to the uh, exponent of 40 there. So each square, uh, if each square were two centimeters in size on our checkerboard, like yay big, right? Each square two centimeters in size, how big would the checkerboard be? The whole checkerboard for this sequence space. It would be 1,000 trillion kilometers across, or 621 trillion miles. These numbers are huge. For example, how far is it to the sun? It's only 93 million miles to the sun, and it's only 25 trillion miles to the nearest star. So what's that comparison to 621 trillion miles of our checkerboard? And this is only 28 character sequence space, okay? How many meaningful 28 character phrases are there in the English language system? That used to be a very difficult question for me, and I used to just kind of throw out big numbers because I had really no basis to know how many there were because you can't look it up 28 character sequences in the dictionary. <laughs> Right? So you have to kind of combine words and figure out how many would be meaningful, and then of those, how many would be beneficial. But then there's this paper that came out in 2000 where they estimated uh, beneficial sequences in protein space, and they said that as sequence space increases by 27 to the n, and n is the size of the sequence, 27 is the number of characters, as it increases by 27 to the n, unstable sequences or non-beneficial sequences uh, increase by less than 27 to the natural log of n, which means that there's a, a huge difference between the exponential of n and the natural log of n. Uh, you can calculate it on your, on your own. But the, the result is that uh, 28 character sequence space would only have two with 26 zeros after it of potentially uh, selectable se or even stable sequences, not even beneficial, just stable. And so the ratio there would be 1 out of 1 to 14. So for every stable sequence, there would be 1 with 14 zeros after it, unstable sequences surrounding it. Okay? In other words, each meaningful phrase would be surrounded by a vast ocean of 100 trillion meaningless ones. Okay? So how to get from one to the next? Changing one letter per second with no repeats, it would take over 3 million years to come across just one of the 1 trillion meaningful phrases on our checkerboard. Uh, 28 characters in size. So that's much different than our three-letter sequence space. Okay? So what about increasing the population? This is just starting with one searcher, one guy walking around looking for targets in sequence space. 
But in reality, your population can be huge. You can have billions of individuals all walking around, and each of them can have billions of uh, millions of genes or, or genetic letters, and they can all be mutating. So does increasing the population help? Find targets? Yes, it does. But by how much? Take the same scenario as before. Increase the number of evolving phrases to one trillion. This would search out sequence squares on our checkerboard a trillion times faster. This increase in population would practically guarantee a target sequence would be found in less than one year at our, at our previous calculation. So this, this solves the problem, right? Uh, have increase in the population, you can find it in less than one year, you solve the problem. Well, it, so, it solves the problem a little bit, but all you have to do is go step up the ladder of complexity a little bit farther and see what happens. How long would it take to find, for the same population of a trillion, all the bacteria on, or a trillion, 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 which is all the bacteria on Earth alive today, to find a target in 1,000 character sequence space? It would take one to the exponent of 600 years, one with 600 zeros after it, using the same calculation, and that's just moving up to 1,000 amino acid sequence space or 1,000 character sequence space, and that's the math for those interested. It's also on my website. So Richard Dawkins to the rescue. He made this program on his computer where he took the same. He started with a random sequence, Mother Luck, okay. <laughs> And uh, that's the starting sequence, and then he used the sequence and it made a bunch of copies of itself or offspring, right? And then he selected the offspring that was the closest match to the sequence, uh, not to the sequence, the closest match to me thinks it's like a weasel, out of all the offspring that he made from this one. And then he used that new sequence to make more offspring and then again selected the closest match to me thinks it's like a weasel. And within 40 generations, voila, he evolved me thinks it's like a weasel, starting with a random sequence. So has he solved the problem? Question, which, again, which is more meaningful, quizzly gook or quizzly guff in the English language system? Neither one, right? So if you start with blah, 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 and you go to blah, 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 which is nature select? <laughs> which is, you know, which is more meaningful? And it doesn't matter. I mean, if you change the, or uh, add another character that matches me, let's just say M-E, does that solve the, the meaningfulness? Is that selectable? Meaningful <laughs> Right? Is that meaningful? Did nature can select that? No. So Darkin, Dawkins has completely skipped over the whole natural selection process. He no longer is using natural selection. He's using sequence template matching, which is not able to explain the origin of a lot of types of protein-based systems that exist in living things. So comparison to real life. Um, does the human language comparison actually correlate to what we see in real life? That's the question. So specified complexity. Kurathan again. The second major argument uh, for intelligent design comes from William Glinsky, a mathematician and philosopher who argues that nature is rife with examples of non-random patterns of information that he calls complex specified information or CSI. To qualify as CSI, the information must be both complex and specified. The letter A, for example, is specified but not complex. You have just one little letter. It has to be A, but only A. It's not very, it's only one letter, right? So it's not very complex. It's simple. However, a string of random letters such as Squiffler, on the other hand, is more complex than just one letter of A, but it's not merely specific. Squiffler versus Skiffler or whatever could be anything, so it's not specific, a specific sequence. A Shakespearean sonnet, however, is both <coughs> complex and specific. It's long, and it has to be specifically arranged. Okay? 
Bivsky and Dembski were right, and then a new gene with a new information system conferring a brand new function on an organism could never come into existence without a designer because a new function requires complex specified information. This is Kenneth Miller's argument again. So there are, are there any examples where random mutation combined with natural selection actually produces complex specified information of the level Dembski is talking about? Yes, there are. Nylonase uh, was shown to evolve by random mutations, completely random mutations. They, they found these bacteria in the back of a, of a factory in Japan that produced nylon, and the bacteria on this pond all of a sudden started eating the nylon, using the energy from the nylon. And nylon is synthetic. It's not found in nature. So how did these bacteria evolve the ability or develop the ability to eat nylon? They did it with a frame shift mutation to a previous genetic sequence, which is a like taking your hands on a typewriter and moving them over one spot and then typing. And you type a random looking sequence, right? But this random looking sequence happened to be a functional enzyme that, that helped the bacteria eat nylon. What are the odds? You know, isn't that amazing that this frame shift mutation, this moving over your hands on a typewriter, would produce a random sequence that actually is functionally beneficial on a level that would produce nylon? That's amazing that it would just end on that. And it's fairly, it's fairly specific in what it requires. And it requires at least 200 amino acids, the, this enzymatic activity. Similar thing happened with lactase. This guy, Barry Hall, he's a scientist, and he wondered if he could uh, take a bacteria that was able to digest lactase, or lactose sugar, delete the lactase genes from that bacteria, these E. coli bacteria, and then grow them in a lactose-rich environment and see how long it would take for that bacteria to re-evolve the ability to eat lactase, uh, lactose, the sugar. And so he did this. He deleted the lac-Z genes from E. coli bacteria, and he put them in a lactose-rich environment. And sure enough, they weren't able to digest lactose for a while. But in one generation, they, uh, a small portion of the colony evolved the ability to eat lactose again. And they did it with a single point mutation. What are the odds that you're going to take one random step at the sequence space and end up on a lactose enzyme sequence? The odds depend on the ratio again. Well, Kenneth Miller says, aha, Dembski is falsified. His whole idea is nonsense because we have these examples of evolution in action producing novel functional genes that work. Brad, a question. One generation. Yeah, but how long does the bacteria live? 20 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, same thing for antibiotic resistance. Uh, bacteria evolve antibiotic resistance or resistance to antibiotics as fast as they come along, very rapidly, just about. In fact, that's a huge problem in medical centers: is that bacteria are able to evolve resistance to just about any antibiotic that comes along. But the question is, how does antibiotic resistance evolve? How, and to answer that question, you need to know a little bit about how antibiotics work. Antibiotics work by coming into a bacterium and attaching to a specific target within the bacterium. Okay? They attach to the specific target very tightly, and then when they disrupt the function of that target, then the bacterium either dies or is reduced in activity. So what happens if the target happens to get a small mutation and it sticks out a finger? Here comes the antibiotic. Can it attach very good? And the targets still probably work because it's only one little point mutation. The car targets can still probably work, maybe not quite as well, but it can still work to do its original function and it's resistant. So what are the odds that a single mutation will come along that blocks the activity or the binding function of the antibiotic? 
the odds are good. A random mutation that happens to put out little fingers on the target or whatever bumps on it that disrupt the binding of the antibiotic are very statistically likely to happen. That's why most forms of antibiotic resistance evolve commonly and very rapidly. Okay? Now let's move up to single protein enzymes like lactase, nylonase, citrase, and whatever. They require no more than about three to 400 amino acids at minimum each. And so the odds that they will evolve is much less common. These examples do not happen nearly as common as these examples because in order to get these, you have to have an independent protein enzyme activity that's not based on the disruption or interaction with some other pre-existing system. These things function on their own. And so the odds that you're going to end up on a beneficial lactase or nylonase enzyme sequence are much less common, much more reduced. But uh, given that they only require three to 400 amino acids at minimum, the ratio of lactases in sequence space has been estimated by those like Yaki and some other scientists, Sauer and Olson, and I have other references, at, at around uh, one in 100 trillion. That's the ratio out of total sequence space. Even though this sequence space is massive, the number of potential lactases or sequences that would work as lactases is also massive to the order of uh, a ratio of one in, uh, with one to the exponent of 14, or one to the 10 to the 14th or so. So let's say you have a, a colony of 100 billion bacteria. What are the odds that 100 billion bacteria will find a lactase within a single generation if the ratio is 1 in uh, 100 trillion? The odds are reasonable. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens often enough in a few types of bacteria where it's at least reasonable to happen in the total bacterial population of the Earth, which is trillion, 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 or 1 to the 10 to the, 30, or 10 to the 34th power. So that's why these systems are seen. But when you move on to systems that require at least 1,000 specified or specifically arranged amino acids, residues working together at the same time, there's no example of such a level of evolution in literature. Evolutionary progress stalls out in an exponential manner, uh, regardless of the maximum population you can reasonably think of in, uh, in observable time. And statistically, when you work out the numbers again, this works into the many trillions of years. And the reason for this here is, um, here's a, a visual illustration of sequence space at various levels. These are projection of hyperdimensional sequence space onto three dimensions. So imagine uh, projecting three dimensions onto two dimensions. Do the two-dimensional projection of shadows of three-dimensional objects look closer together? They look closer together because let's say I had a bunch of balloons in this room and then I had a light behind them and I projected them onto, this, onto a board, the shadows of them. Would the shadows look closer together? Yes. This is projection of thousands of, or hundreds of dimensions onto three dimensions. So these balls look closer together than they really are in sequence space. But you notice something from going for less than 30 amino acids to proteins with greater than 300 amino acids. Are these closer together in space and are compared to these ones? On average, the distance increases in a linear manner as the size of the proteins increase known protein systems. So as the size of the linear distance increases, what happens to the random walk distance on average? It increases exponentially, right? So that's the, that's the statistical argument against uh, evolution from my perspective. For me, that's the most convincing argument. The nail's the coffin. Uh, the nail's the last nail in the coffin for evolution for me. That's what convinced me. But there's other arguments like God wouldn't have done it that way. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm over time. If you guys want to stay for the rest, you can. Otherwise, uh, you're free to go.
I got just a few more slides. This guy, Francis Aya, he's a uh, professor of biology, biological sciences, uh, National Medical Science laureate. He, this is his argument against the God wouldn't have done it that way argument. The implication of intelligent design is that we have, that God is a very, very bad engineer. I mean, an engineer who have to sign an eye with the optic nerve having to cross the retina would be fired. Um, an engineer that would have to sign the human jaw would be fired. Our jaw is not big enough for all our teeth. God making this trivial, obvious mistake and errors of design. Well, maybe they're God does those things, certainly not mine. I don't want to have to worship a God that is uh, uh, not smart enough to do as well as a human engineer. Okay, so, I mean, it's reasonable. Why would you want to serve a God who can't do it as good as you can do it? Okay, so the question is, how good can you do it? Okay, so here, here's the design argument for, for the human eye. You know, God just wouldn't have done it that way because the human eye happens to be wired backward. Okay, so here's the argument for the backward wiring of the human eye. Any engineer, according to Dawkins again, would naturally assume that the photocells would be pointed toward the source of light with their wires leaning backward toward the brain. He would laugh at any suggestion that the photocells might point away from the light with their wires departing on the side nearest the light. Yet this is exactly what happens in all vertebrate retinas. Each photocell is, in effect, wired backwards, with its wire sticking out the, nearest, the side nearest the light. The wire has to travel over the surface of the retina to a point where it dives through a hole in the retina, so-called the blind spot, to join the optic nerve. This means that the light, instead of being granted an unrestricted passage to the photocells, has to pass through a forest of connecting wires presumably suffering at least some attenuation and distortion. Actually, probably not much, but still, it's the principle of the thing that would offend any tiny-minded engineer. Okay? So let's see this. This is the vertebrate retina, uh, or vert the verted retina versus the inverted retina. And this is what, like, arthropods and squid and, and octopus, they have this wire the proper, the proper way where the photocells point toward the source of light and the wires stick out the backside. Our retina and mammal's retina are wired with the wires in front of the source of light. So the light has to go through the wires, then all the way to the back. And here's the detection apparatus here. And this is the back of the retina. And so this is where the detec detection of light in our retinas is. And so it's wired backward. Who on earth would design such a backward, fumbled up concept? Right? Certainly not an intelligent guy. So, but there's certain advantages to having an inverted retina. It allows for greater visual acuity and image processing power versus a verted form. The cost, of high visual, the cost is high for high visual acuity. For example, the human retina uses more energy than the brain's cortex, 300% more. It uses 50% more than the renal cortex and 600% more than the heart. Okay? So in order to provide that kind of energy for a visual processing power, you have to provide a great deal of nutrition. And so you need to put the photocells, or the source of high energy utilization, close to the source of energy supply. Okay? So they need to be closer uh, for that part alone. Um, well, there's another problem with it. Also, for the squid, for example, if you have your uh, rods and cones pointed 
toward the source of light, which direction do the little uh, disks on the rods and cones slough off of? The tip, right? Sloughs off the tip. If they slough off the tip at a very high ratio, because we slough off uh, thousands and thousands per day, per, uh, it would cloud up your vision in front of the cone if it sloughed off in front of your visual field. If it's turned around and it sloughs off into the choroid plexus, it can be absorbed and not mess up your visual field. Okay? So th those are two things. What about the whole distortion idea? Uh, the wires happen to be translucent, but even then, translucent wires can distort light a little bit. It was recently found within two, in 2007 that there are these cells that penetrate all the layers and they act like optic fibers, like fiber optics. And they take the light from one side and they go through by fiber optic transmission to the other side and then uh, release the light undistorted. And so this solves the whole distortion problem. And who would have guessed it? You know, except by intelligent design. Maybe. So, just a couple of movie books. This is the inner life of the cell. These are white blood cells moving along the vessels. And then they come to a source of infection. This is the white cell rolling along. And when they find the source of infection, all these little signals are put out. And then they attach there, and then they go through the vessel wall. These are little islands uh, that support proteins on the outer surface of the cell, and they do signal transduction. They float along with the protein sticking out. This is this external skeleton of the cell made up of proteins and these islands floating around. This is traveling in through the skeleton of the cell into the inner cytoplasm of the cell. This is all put out by Harvard, by the way. You can look at the video online. These are microfibers that assemble themselves to a certain distance, and then they're modified in length by other proteins that come along at just the right spot and trim them to the proper length. This is a microtubule that comes along and it's formed also like an amoeba needs to move and it needs to form these microtubules. And then at the other end where it needs to pull up the backside, it degrades the microtubules. And then you got these other things that walk along the microtubules and pull these vesicles for transport to different locations where you need to put other stuff. And it walks along just like that with two little feet. This is a centromere of the cell. It has its own DNA and it tells the cell when it needs to divide and also helps in transport as well. These are nuclear pores on the nucleus of the cell, and they spit out the microRNA like this when it's formed, and then the decoding apparatus attached to it, and they spit out the protein very rapidly. Then the proteins go for modification to the Golgi apparatus here, and then the Golgi, see that it spits into the raphonocratic reticulum, and then it's modified in the Golgi apparatus. And then the proteins get put into these little vesicles. And then the vesicles get transported by the little walking machine to either outside the cell or other places inside the cell where they need to go. See how they're walking along, all these little blobs, when they're modified by the Golgi apparatus. And then they're spit out the cell, all the extra debris that it doesn't need. And then it needs to, if it needs to communicate with other cells, here's another cell over the top of it. It gets to the right spot, this get, uh, threshold of island here of uh, proteins gets to a certain threshold and then these things spring open just the right time to connect to the other proteins on the other cell. This is how the macrophage knows where to go. And it slips through the cell through the uh, wall of the vessel to go and attack the foreign invaders at just the right spot. 
Amazing, huh? And I think this is a DNA replication. This is the translation. The DNA comes in, double-stranded, and it splits off into two strands, and each one is copied. And so you have the little arms of the apparatus copying each strand, and this one reaches just at the right spot to copy it, produces these oxidizing fragments. And this little apparatus by itself is extraordinarily complicated. This is DNA transcription. That was DNA replication, I'm sorry, before. This is transcription into messenger RNA. It takes a bunch of proteins to connect to it to just the right spot. Then this thing gets released, and it flies along very, very rapidly, making messenger RNA. <laughs> Incredible, huh? This is zipping along, and that's about how fast it goes. And then this is the Jolly uh, I already showed you that. So that's all I have. Thank you very much. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.